Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. A quick note before we begin, parents, you might want to listen to this one before you have children to teens in the room with you. This episode does contain inevitable references to violence, drug use, and mature themes. Thanks so much. We will leave the decision up to you. And here's your 30-second summary. She was the best of empresses. She was the worst of empresses. Hers was a life of cunning cruelty. Hers was a life of innovation, good or evil, brilliant or reckless. Her legacy is a tale of two empresses, but which one is true? The end. Let's talk about Dowager Empress Su Chi. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1835, for the first and as yet only time in U.S. history, the national debt was zero dollars and zero cents. Hans Christian Andersen began publishing fairy tales, and the first foreign embassy and the first sugar plantation were established in Hawaii. P.T. Barnum's circus began touring. Adelaide Stevenson, Andrew Carnegie, Samuel Clemens, and Ronnie Lakshmi Bai were born. And on November 29th, 1835, a baby girl was born who would grow to become Empress Suchi. Yahinara Ching was born on November 29th in 1835 in Beijing, China, the oldest child of the five children of Yahinara Huai Tsang and Lady Fuka. I have never had more phonetic spellings in notes than I have in this particular one. It's crazy. Well, and given the fact that translation into our alphabet is really inefficient, half the time I'm going to get the consonant combinations wrong. So we will do the best we can um, with great respect to all involved. Um, (laughs) And chances are we will make some mistakes. So please forgive that. Well, the woman who history would later know as Su Chi has many names throughout her story. Um, I think we chose different pathways. I changed them as I got to them. Um, Susan left her as Su Chi. I'm not sure... (laughs) <laughs> Which way we proceed? Maybe both. But- I'll try to keep up with you. I think that noting when her name changed is important, and I have that in my notes, but it changes so often that even I was getting confused, and the spelling of it, depending on the source you're reading, also changes. Well, even the name that has been sort of settled on here for the beginning, Tsing or Ching, which means almond, is only family lore. In fact, her actual name at birth to 14-ish might be lost to history, just as her mother's entire story is. Mama was the daughter of a man named Fuka Hui Chan. Of course, you know, the last or family name was first. Um, She was just known as Lady Fuka. That's it. That's all we know. Her family was noble. She was referred to as her husband's, quote, primary wife. There is a more famous Lady Fuca, an empress. This is not that one. There are likely a hundred Lady Fucas. And at first I was sort of surprised? It was not the right word. Irritated, I guess, by that erasing of identities. But then I started to think, well, even in Western culture, I want to say as recently as the 1970s, women were referred to as, you know, Mrs. Timothy Smith, Uh not Clementine Smith or whatever her name was. Old photos with captions. The women all just have Mrs. Husband's name. They're lost to history too, unless you knew them personally. 
just like Lady Fuca. <laughs> also, at this time, you know, it wasn't important to save her information because we didn't know then who she would become. Well, so Papa, a little more documentation here. Yeah. He was also from a noble family, a Manchu family, which is sort of critical to the rest of this story. So here's very quickly what happened in China. At this point in Chinese history, there's two main ethnic groups in play. There was the Han and the Manchu. The Han had the numbers. There was more of them across China. But the Manchu had the power, and they had been leading the Qing dynasty for almost 200 years. The Manchu people had taken advantage of a power vacuum in China. So the emperor, the Ming emperor, was having a little bit of trouble. And they had come down south toward the Great Wall of China and... Uh, kind of presented themselves at the gate as allies. <laughs> sure, come in and help us. Okay, you let the vampire in. <laughs> that seems hilarious to me that the Great Wall of China was built to expressly protect China from, quote, barbarians who honestly were let in at the gate. <laughs> All they had to do was knock. And I don't mean that it was like they came in the back door of a palace one night and, you know, you turned on the lights in the morning and it's like, hey, hey, I'm sitting on your throne. You know, of course not. It was decades of battle and blood with the end result that what you have is a majority Manchu noble class ruling over a Han Chinese majority. So all the powerful people are descended from either these Manchu people or their Mongol allies, or Han officials who'd come over to the Manchu side in the conflict and were rewarded with Manchu noblewomen as wives. So that should give you a little hint as to the status of women. So anyway, the bubbling Han resentment has been breaking out ever since. And though we cannot possibly mention them all, in the background of this whole entire story, there is one rebellion or another in some part of this country, it seems like. Yeah. And also, forget winter's coming. The white people are coming. Let us just say these are turbulent times. Her father was a fairly well-off mid-level government official who was the son of a mid-level government official. So their house was in a nice street. There was plenty of money. Our little Ching wanted for nothing. She learned the traditional ladylike skills, embroidery, and other kinds of sewing and drawing accomplishments suitable for a lady in any time period, as we are discovering, but also chess. That's very mathematical. And some reading and writing in Chinese, but if you're going on percentages, Cheng was nearly illiterate. Chinese was and is, as we found to our despair, a language without a real alphabet. So to be considered really literate, people would study for decades. All these thousands of characters you had to memorize, which sent me down a rabbit hole about how the heck people even text in China or type reports or whatever. And it's just enormously complicated, it seems to me. And it, it like requires some kind of different brain training program than other languages. It's kind of amazing and um, terrifying to me. <laughs> so I will provide you a link with how, I mean, their keyboards alone would like to kill you. But in the 1800s, as far as society was concerned, if you're going to go be a wife and mother of sons, there's no need to worry your pretty little head. I mean, for real, because a lot of men didn't either. In 1950, the literacy rate in China was still only 20%. Reading and writing was something you paid a professional to handle for you. The end. Mm -hmm. So 
her being illiterate, you'll see, you know, she was an illiterate empress. It's like, well, chances are, yeah, you're right. So was everyone else. So don't let that color your impression of her, I guess is what I'm saying. When Qing was around seven years old, the emperor of China, Emperor Daoguang, discovered that an enormous amount of money was just missing from the royal treasury. When did it go? Who stole it? There was no telling. So he laid down the law. Everyone who's ever worked in that department has to divide up this shortfall and pay me back. Everyone who ever worked there in the past 44 years, I mean. And that debt went all the way back to Ching's great grandfather. He was the guy that was in that department at the time that the money went missing. Um, You know, your highness, he died a long time ago. That guy that you want to pay your money back? Fine. His son has to pay half then. And that's Ching's grandpa, who had nothing to do with it, had never worked in that department, was now on the hook for an amount that was about 40 times his annual salary. (laughs) I would like for you to pay back. Well, you might have student loans. Maybe you understand what I'm saying. (laughs) That's a hard sum to pay back in any era. Well, after a few years, when the man had not come up with a significant portion, the emperor got impatient and clapped grandpa in jail until his son paid it. And who was that lucky man? That was Ching's father. At this point, Ching is about 11 and she wants to help the family. She takes in sewing. She went through the family's possessions and essentially put them on Craigslist to sell whatever she could. She coordinated efforts to get loans from anybody that they knew. She was very bright and very intelligent and kind of mastermind the whole thing where this family could get the money. I mean, she's 11 and she's helping to raise this money to bail her grandfather out of jail. And she does. She gets 60% of it. And I am doubtful. I am not sure. Common sense would tell you that a teenage girl who's never been out of the house is not going to be masterminding the retrenching of a family (laughs) um, who owed the dad a favor, etc. I just don't I just don't know about this level of street smarts. Still, the story is her papa openly praised her by saying, and believe me, this is a big time compliment around here, that this daughter of mine is more like a son. See, and it was that statement that made me think that perhaps part of that was true, if not the whole thing. I I don't know. She was the oldest, and we can see later that she's extraordinarily intelligent. I will give you that. And I know that kids tossed into adversity have to grow up a lot faster. I leave it to your own judgment. (laughs) Whatever her specific input was, by the time Ching was 15, the family had raised a little more than half of that giant fine. And Papa, who just might be a financial wizard himself, according to the emperor, was rewarded for this by being appointed the governor of a distant province in Mongolia. Mongolia. And so the family moved to Hohot, a town that's about 300 modern miles from Beijing. And I don't know if this included the imprisoned grandpa. Is 60% money enough to get him out of jail? I hope so. Yeah, I was. I never saw grandpa again <laughs> in anything. Well, it wasn't his debt in the first place. And I really know. Hadn't been great grandpa's debt to pay either, really. But well, whatever. I hope grandpa got to go with and to see the high plains of Mongolia. I really do. And they moved essentially out to the country and it was just beautiful, totally different environment. Where papa in his place as tax collector and completely within the purview of the governor fleeced the populace to pay himself for all the money he had given to the emperor. <laughs> 
<laughs> graft was a way of life. <laughs> well, the emperor died. Emperor Daoguang, rest in peace. And long live the new emperor, Emperor Chanfeng, age 19, who had been the fourth son. Now, that's not as weird as you might think. In this case, sons one through three had already died. So technically, he was the oldest left. That wasn't necessarily what was going to happen. We don't have primogeniture, the firstborn son situation here in China that's happening elsewhere, which might be good because the most suitable gets the job in theory. In this case, so one through three, dead, you know, disqualified. Seven through nine were considered too young. Son number five had been given to an uncle to raise as his own child. And by the rules of succession, he was no longer eligible to become the emperor. So that's a bummer for him. Although who wants that kind of job? Not me. Uh, child six could have been considered, but his father thought that he was too malleable and too fond of foreigners and... As the emperor had an exclusionist policy, he did not think that was the son for the times. So, son number four wins. Now, how does that affect our story? It's absolutely critical. Get this. I don't like this. Noble Manchu families and Mongol families were required to register their daughters with the government at puberty. The new emperor needed wives. Do you see where I'm going with this? Mm -hmm. He needed wives and he needed a lot of them. <laughs> and he got to pick them. Every emperor got to pick his own harem. The qualifications for this position were kind of specific. They had to be Manchu. So our girl is Manchu. Her parents had to be of a certain rank. Check that box off too. They had to have hit puberty over 14. She had done that as well. So guess what? She's going back to Beijing. She was called up with the rest of her class, as they say, and in the new emperor's 21st year of life, the draftees were to proceed to the capital for the selection process. So when Ching was 16, off she went in a padded mule-drawn wagon with a top on it so no one could peek in at her. She and all of the other carts, there were hundreds of women, arrive at the back door of the Forbidden City. No ladies in the public area, please and thank you. The separation of the sexes was very, very real and very, very strict. And the next day... After having spent the night in the carts, I hope they gave him a potty break or something. Uh, thank you. That's exactly what I was thinking. It was a beautiful ceremony. These carts all went in silence. The city shut down. It was a big deal. And these carts all went in silence at sunset just to park outside the rear of the Forbidden City for the night. It must have looked lovely. I think. From but yeah, the outside. They're like on mattresses inside this thing, sitting on the floor. There was an ambassador, this is much later, a British ambassador that said riding one of those carts would test the patience of a saint because there, you know, obviously there's no shock absorbers and the roads were not modern highway roads crushed by that machine. It's always so fascinating. No, these had potholes and ruts and you could basically, I know it's padded, but be thrown from stem to stern for 10, 12, 44 hours, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're yeah. just thrown all over a padded box. It's not very refreshing. No. <laughs> well, anyway, they were let out the next day. Hooray. Um, they were very simply dressed so that no one's superior mother's fashion sense would trick the emperor. They walked in and lined up in rows for inspection. No one had bound feet. That was a Han thing. She was very fortunate to be a Manchu. Uh, the Han were the ones that did the foot binding. They were the ones that broke those little girls' feet and, and wrapped them up so they would remain at a maximum of four inches. So she escaped that. So she'll ha be able to walk around her whole life. 
So there they are. And just this once, they didn't have to bow to the emperor. If you've ever seen Anna and the King with Jodie Foster, uh, or even the previous one, I think they do it. You've seen it. It's called the kowtow. You kneel on the ground and then you bend down to touch your forehead to the ground. This is not a little courtly bow to Queen Victoria. You are on the ground. And they didn't have to do that because he is walking around with some officials looking at you and he needs to see your face. So creepy. It is. But I mean, it's one time in their life. You know, when else are they going to be able to see him eye to eye? Never, unless they're chosen, I suppose. But what was he looking for? He was looking for someone who was dignified, someone who had poise, who was gentle. I don't know how you can see that by looking at someone. Maybe you poked him. I'm just kidding. Yeah. And looks were actually a secondary thing. It wasn't the primary thing. He wasn't like looking at him like he'd be searching for a model. He was just looking at them, trying to find the women that had the characteristics that he was looking for. I know. It would be like looking... At an auditorium full of people and trying to pick out 10 people that would be really good friends to you based on how they look. It's just, it's a crapshoot. I'm sorry. It's a crapshoot. And they're all dressed the same. Yeah. Yeah. Row after row. Well, she was noted for her grace. She's just standing there, however, uh, and for her fine eyes. So see, Mr. Darcy was onto something there. Maybe that was what got her in. But for whatever reason, the emperor chose her and also around 10 others from the pack. She won. And I'm almost thinking this might have been something a girl might have hoped for because it's not as if you ever got to pick your own husband. I mean, you never saw guys. You haven't been able to pick a boyfriend that you left your heart with at home. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Your parents had been forbidden by law to make any marriage arrangements for you until you'd been rejected by the emperor. He got first pick. So you marry this guy, this unknown guy, and have unlimited money and status and no official duties, or you can go home and marry some other unknown man who's guaranteed to be in a worse situation, but closer to your house. Okay, well... I don't know. <laughs> That's Hobson's <laughs> choice. I don't know. Not that they had a choice. but um, And there's a middle ground here that I think is far worse than either of those options, actually. Ching and her other new royal fiancés were excused to another room. And then other royal princes and high government officials got to prowl around and pick their ladies out. I don't like that. And then <laughs> if you made it through this gauntlet, you could go and you were free to marry whoever you wanted. Well, not you, whoever your parents chose for you. But again, if you landed with a prince, it's probably a better life than landing with, you know, the ditch digger back in the village, maybe. I keep thinking if you were a noble daughter, you're not marrying a ditch digger. Sorry. I don't no, care that's if the true. ditch digger is <laughs> digging up treasure troves of money. Maybe yeah. Then. Yeah, you're marrying a tax collector like dad and who's figured out a way to fleece the populace. Yeah, you're right. Well, everyone could go back home to get ready, say your goodbyes, pack your stuff, whatever you needed to do. Um, but on June 26th, 1852, Ching moved in to the harem of the Forbidden City and was given the name Lan, which means orchid, which she hated. <laughs> Noble <laughs> Lady Lan. She just hated. Bleh. I don't know why. Well, she came in as a rank six concubine. Six of eight. That's pretty low. That sucks. Well, she only had four maids. Hmm. She didn't have her own cow. That's I, horrible. <laughs> how can? How do you find the courage to go on? And, you know, a handful of eunuchs. That's it. But there was a hierarchy. I mean, there was a tradition. The levels of concubine that you, wherever you were, you got a specific thing. It was already written out. There was no discussion. You're in a suite. The empress was going to get a palace. You were going to get a suite. It's kind of like being in a college dorm. All the women are living together. It's just women and eunuchs. That's it. Well, the new empress, the first rank, 
was a girl named Jen who had come in as a member of her group. That's a bummer. Uh, <laughs> and there she stayed. One of ultimately 19 wives. Her husband gathered some more over the years, even elevating some maids up to concubine status. That's sort of uncool. Mm. Now, if this were a fairy tale, the emperor would notice her intelligence behind her fine eyes and ask her for her opinion and rely upon her as an advisor. But he did not. Among his concubines, he did have one that seemed to be more girlfriend material than the rest, but it wasn't our girl. No. And you'll read some sources that say that it was our girl. That's the part that kills me of this story, that she was, you know, she was quickly elevated to a premier status. And that wasn't the case at all. It took her a long time. She was hanging out with the girls. You know, she was painting and learning calligraphy and playing games with them and raising Pekingese dogs day in and day out. It wasn't the fast track that some sources will tell you. Well, he sure could have used some advice from somebody. That's for sure. There were... Rebellions all over China, and worse, the worst, one called the Taiping Rebellion down south, had resulted in an actual rival kingdom being established south of Beijing, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, starring King Hong Chunquan, who said he was the younger brother of Jesus. Yes. I'm sorry to say that this dude, his scenario, and the fighting that went back and forth ultimately resulted in the deaths of over 20 million people. More on that later. That is happening in the background. Lon did try to talk war strategy with her husband, and I don't think she was imposing her will on him, but, you know, you're making conversation. And it worked with Papa, evidently. Either her husband did not value her viewpoint at all or think it was cute. He was infuriated at the nerve of her, a woman, to even think she could interfere or influence him. He was ready to punish her for what she had done and stepped out of her, you know, her sphere of responsibilities. But Empress Zhen, now this woman was chosen for this job, not because she was beautiful or she was of the highest class or anything. She was chosen as Empress because her job was to manage all the concubines and to make that girls college in the back of the Forbidden City a nice place to live without a lot of backstabbing. So Empress Zhen was very good at that. She came in on Lan's behalf and said to him, you know, look, she was just trying to be a good wife to you. And whatever she said must have worked because he forgave her? Yeah, the Empress seems to be one of those women who can read people and know how to manage them. She was wise in that Scarlet O'Hara kind of way, mm -hmm. I think. And she calmed down the Emperor, who, according to legend, had called Lon distrustful and cunning and a danger and had actually had an execution order drawn up against her. This was serious. Mm -hmm. And the Empress made it all better. Empress Jen might well have saved Lon's life. That is important to remember for loyalty purposes later. And they became very close, like you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, point taken, says Lon. We'll talk about music and the weather. I got it. It wasn't a lot of chatter anyway. The women were not allowed to sleep over. You know, their name was on the scroll. The eunuchs got them, brought him to one of his two bedrooms, and they did their business. And the women left. Now, legend says that the women came in, they were naked and wrapped in silks and carried into him. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but it's kind of a cool image, I guess. Maybe. I think how that all started is some 
Mama concubine tried to kill her husband and smuggled in a weapon. And I think that was a um, take your shoes off at the airport measure uh-huh. <laughs> to prevent that from happening. Um, you know, I don't 100% know that's true, except for I did read that a future concubine objected to that and refused to go along with it and got a special dispensation. So as the exception that proves the rule, I kind of tend to think that might actually be true then. Hmm. If if somebody's on record getting a dispensation, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It just seemed kind of one of those legends, you know, it just seemed too grandiose to be true. And I don't know, wrapped in silk seems like some kind of other thing. It's probably just some kind of blanket. (laughs) I do not know if the emperor has a short memory or is the empress just that good? Or did Lon have some kind of magic potion? I don't know. Empress Jen got Lon promoted to a rank five concubine, which is a bigger step up than you think because six to eight were the low on the totem pole. In fact, ranks seven and eight were practically servants. Three to five were the middle and one and two were just the top. There's one person each. So to go to a five, you're actually moving up in status to a whole other level of dignity, enough that there was a ceremony and a name change. So our little Ching, our little Lan, was now Imperial Concubine Yi, which meant exemplary. Yi, exemplary. Much better than Orchid. She liked it a lot. (laughs) All of this medium attention, middle rank stuff came to an abrupt halt when Yi was 20 years old because she gave birth to a son. She got to do the thing that nobody else did. She did the job that she was hired for. That's all in a sarcasm font. The emperor did have one other child that was born shortly before her son, but first child was a girl and it needs to be a boy. And Yi produces that boy. Yay. Well, the joy of the court and her husband could not be denied. She is the mother of the heir, at least as of right now. That's no small potatoes. And instantly she got a promotion. She is now rank number four, consort Yi. Everyone in this situation, it's just like at Versailles, is very focused on etiquette and correct ranks and the respect due to each rank. So every single promotion pushes her to a different level of respect from other people. It's hard for us to understand in this modern, really informal world, compared to older societies, but this really was a very big deal. Well, officially, though, as far as the court was concerned, the empress was the mother of this new prince, little Zai Chun. Also, as usual in royal cases, a wet nurse was employed to feed the child, but I love this, (laughs) to ensure quality, they aimed high for the wet nurse and then simply paid for a wet nurse for her baby. I had never heard of that before. This baby was given everything. He was washed in a solid gold bowl. He received piles and piles of really valuable gifts, so much so that when in the first year he had 900 gold, silver, and jeweled objects and 500 pieces of fabric items, you know, clothing or tapestries. That's a lot for a baby. Yeah, that's exactly what every one-year-old wants is a big figurine made of gold. (laughs) Well, hey, his uh, umbilical cord and placenta were buried out back in a pit with red silk and gold and silver chopsticks. Okay. (laughs) People do stuff like that. People eat the placenta also. I know. I do have a friend that buried their placenta. They had a ceremony and buried it in the yard and put a tree over it. 
I guess it's pretty. I like the tree part. I guess I don't understand the other part, but uh, I, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. I actually have no judgment. <laughs> I don't understand the chopsticks plus placenta situation if they're not going to eat it, but that is just me. There was a reason. There was a traditional reason that they did that. So Consort Yi and Empress Jen's whole world was still within the harem. They did not have day-to-day contact with the child. However, it was considered kind of unseemly. He was cared for by a group of eunuchs. Men that some volunteered and some were made so by their families at a young age. We'll have to link you to that whole classification of people in the Chinese empire, too. Um, A lot of their stories are pretty heartbreaking, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, um, but they did see him as often as they could, and they really did not have conflicts with each other. They were very good co-parents. I I don't know what else to say about that, except for they did a very good job of sharing him. They had the princess, too. So the two ha- were playmates. There's lots of um, art. Zaychen and the princess playing in the garden. There's paintings of it. So uh, it looks like a really nice childhood. Now, for a man who has been so involved in the marital arts... I mean, he had 19 wives. We have a record of who went where. And let's just say almost every night was no exaggeration. A practice that he, hmm, how do I put this in a PG podcast? (laughs) I don't know, but I'm just going to sit here and wait. (laughs) Um, A self-limiting practice that um, was adhered to by noble men led to the fact that the fertility rate of the imperial court was very very low. Um, Prince Saichun had one older sister, and then about two years after Prince Saichun was born, another wife gave birth to a son who died as a baby. And that's it for biological children. So Prince Saichun, uh, and therefore his mother, became ever more important within the household. She was elevated to rank three to noble consort Yi, where she was really second only to the empress herself. Now, in the background of all of this domestic activity, Europe had, shall we say, come calling. The allure of having a new colony was nearly irresistible. China, and in particular Britain, had fought a war years ago in order to allow opium and merchants and Christian missionaries into the country, which was more dangerous. Mm, I'm going to go with the opium is the most dangerous because it was a huge problem across China, addiction to opium. It's it was a big deal. So I'm going to go with opium being the worst thing. Oh, wasn't I not given a choice? Was that rhetorical? Uh, I have different views. They may or may not come out later. (laughs) I know you do. All right. Well, China had a good point. Look, you know opium's poison, so you don't allow your own people to have it. Actually, they did because laudanum abuse is very real. But China is like, why do you think it's okay to foist this dangerous crap on us? That's not cool. Okay, long story short, China was defeated, was forced to sign a very unfair treaty, and was left with a giant war debt, an almost unpayable tribute to pay to Britain, missionaries infiltrating the country, and demanding preferred treatment there. They were given cities like Shanghai, the whole island of Hong Kong, that were subject not to Chinese law, but British law. And also, the emperor, who had been a small child when all of this went down, had grown up with an absolute hatred of foreigners. In fact, one of the first things he'd done when he became emperor was to summon his father's advisor who'd recommended that treaty and order him to commit suicide. He was not playing. Foreigners, 
No, that's what I'm saying. That's his whole background, his whole life growing up. His prejudice was very justified and real. The year that Yi's son was born, the British started up again. We want more stuff, they said. They were angry that the emperor didn't want to concede more territory and give them more money. Really? How dare they? I don't get how Britain felt so entitled to everything. I don't either. But this time they brought friends, you know, their buddies, the French. They were in on it, too. They're like, oh, yeah, we want a piece of this Chinese pie. Now you have the British and the French as allies, and they are with regular guns fighting these armies that had clubs and shields. I mean, there was no chance of victory for the Chinese people. They came back with what amounted to shock troops, took down some towns, and then sent some diplomats to negotiate. And the emperor had them all imprisoned and very poorly treated to the point where over half of the British diplomats sent to negotiate with a little white flag of truce. Over half of these guys died and the British were coming now for sure in retaliation. So our imperial family had been at the Summer Palace, which was delightful majestic kind of complex of 200 palaces and follies and sunken gardens and glorious artifacts from hundreds of years of history. They had been there celebrating the emperor's 30th birthday and word came that the British were coming, the British were coming and they had to flee. And unlike Marie Antoinette and friends who we just covered on our other podcast, The Recapery, the emperor went ahead and removed to a more remote hunting lodge for safety. And the British and the French came to the Summer Palace, and wow, did it stop them for just a little while. Says one general, nothing in Europe can give any idea of such luxury. And this man had seen Versailles. Speaking of that, the fountains here had been inspired by Versailles and ran on the same gravity-fed principles. The palaces of France were very admired by previous emperors, so there was a little bit of homage to, I just think that's like such a meta type of situation. <laughs> well, we'll give you a link to um, the splendors of the Summer Palace. There is obviously no photography because of what's about to happen next. Let's just say that a cultural icon and beloved heart of the empire was utterly destroyed. Actually, I should say, in fairness, the French soldiers were okay with the looting part. Give me some silk and gold figurines. All right, I'll put them in my poche, my pockets. But they refused to take part in the burning it all down section of the festivities. That was squarely on the British. There had been an older concubine who died of fright at the Summer Palace, and her Pekingese dogs were there. And the British kind of scooped up the puppies and sent them back to England so they could breed them. And Queen Victoria got one of them. What a lovely souvenir from bloodshed. But they burnt the place down to the ground. It burned for days and days and days and covered even Beijing, which was miles away, in plumes of black smoke and also created great hatred for the foreigners who had done it. Imagine if someone came over here and took out Disneyland and the White House and filled in the Grand Canyon with buckets of poop and blew up Mount Rushmore and then tried to be our friend. No, I don't think so, right? I don't think so. And what part did Noble Consort Yi have in all of this? Zero. A future British biographer forged some passages in a translation that he was doing that put all the blame for the envoy killing and other hostilities, all of the reluctance to sign a new treaty, put all the blame on her, the dragon lady, who was the mastermind of her weak husband, etc. He made up a whole story out of 
cloth. And it was only, you know, 100 years later that people started to notice, hey, wait, the Chinese original version doesn't have these passages in there. It, we're talking like 1970s mm-hmm. before it was realized that this guy had just made up a whole story about Su Chi that wasn't even true. So she literally had no effect on this policy or any policies. She might have had her own ideas, surely. But remember the previous near-death experience. If you haven't learned from that, you'd be a fool. And she was no fool. The blame for all of this chaos was, of course, on the British, as far as I'm concerned, but on the emperor's cabinet, his traditional advisors, I think. The only even vaguely political thing that she did was to convince her husband to let the seventh royal brother... Prince Chun marry her own sister. Marriage, that's acceptable interference. That's a woman's work, especially when it's like somebody's sister. Like, who cares? Whatever. And it's not just like he's going to have one wife, whatever. Mm-hmm. What's one more? So that's her only real political maneuver. But um, she got the blame for 100 years. The emperor asked his brother, brother number six, Prince Gong, to deal with the invaders. This was the one that their father had said was too diplomatic to be an emperor. And he pacified and honestly caved in to accomplish peace. I don't know what else he was supposed to do. And what happened is that the British and the French got more than they came for in the first place. They imposed huge fines on China for this war that China hadn't even started. Uh, Opium was to become legal. More ports were to be open to them. More diplomats and missionaries were allowed to come into China, go farther into China. It was crushing. It was more than they came for. And they got it. So not a good job there, Prince Gong. Well, except for I really think that he did all he could under the circumstances. Because when you don't have a functioning army... Mm-hmm. You need to stop it. And then behind the scenes, you can recalibrate and like build up your thing. But you're, I think, as far as he was concerned, his main goal was to staunch the bleeding. Yeah. And and he did a good job. However, China did lose a lot of territory, curiously, some of which was to the Russians, which I didn't even think were participating up until now. (laughs) Well, they also lost a lot of face. The emperor, frankly, refused to be in the same city as the British invaders. And so Gong was left to handle it all back in Beijing. Well, in exile, the emperor fell ill. Was it stress? Was it humiliation or maybe the non-weatherproof nature of that hunting lodge. I'm not sure what it was. Uh, He was filling handkerchiefs with blood, so I'm guessing tuberculosis? Maybe. Does it matter? Well, (laughs) no, not really. He's on the way out and on his deathbed dictated his wishes to his council, his eight-member council. He was deemed too weak to hold the brush that would paint with the traditional red ink his official wishes. Notably, someone else wrote the words down on paper. What were those words? Oh, that's a matter of dispute. There is one story that says that the eight men were scheming to take over the country by hook or by crook, by putting a puppet on the throne or simply taking it themselves, but perhaps leaving out the five-year-old son of noble consort Yi. That was unacceptable to our heroine. She knew something was up. She didn't even like it that these were the guys that had advised him in the wars. They had done nothing positive for China and they were also keeping her out of it. So she wiggled her way in to see the emperor and to give him her final goodbyes. And she brought her son with her and she asked him point blank who the successor was going to be. At that point, the emperor names his son, his five-year-old son. There's too many people in the room to deny it. The eight men are ticked off that their scheme 
name didn't work, but, you know, Suchi was happy because her son got to be the next emperor. Then there's another story that says that he said out loud that the two head consorts were to be regents as well. Some accounts will tell you this. Others say, and I go on this side, no way, that he would not nominate women. That is ridiculous. And I kind of lean to this knowing how they treated women all the way along. I just cannot imagine that he's going to give full power. There was a tradition of dowager empresses being regents, however, which lends credence to that story. So once again, only the people in that room know what actually happened. And then one of them died. So we don't have his word anymore. Within a few hours, the emperor was dead. Long live the emperor. And this is a good moment to take a little break. And when we come back, we will find out how the little prince's reign began. Everything is not as straightforward as it seemed. The palace eunuchs, who are the only men around within the harem section of the palace, were reporting back to the ladies some very strange things. One of the eight regents, a man named Sushun, had evidently been trying out the throne in the middle of the night. That is super sus. He... This guy is like the Charles Brandon figure from Henry VIII, sort of the upstart favorite. I know we had called Charles Brandon Henry VIII's frat brother, and that kind of applies. Um, the nobles don't really respect him or like him, and he had a bigger head, perhaps, than they thought he ought to have. So this is the guy in question. Um, he'd also been hanging out with the emperor's younger brothers in a very suspicious way. So was he planning to use the throne. Well, nine out of nine Manchu emperors were the winners in some kind of succession contest. So, hmm, now you'd think in this case, there's one heir, he wins the end, but he's five years old. So maybe not so. The world has become a very dangerous place for little boys and their mothers. Word was, said the eunuchs, that Sushan was planning to have our friend, noble consort Yi, killed. Speaking of that, she actually is not noble consort he anymore. The two empresses dowager, Zhen, was now Tzu An, which means kindly and serene. And that's pretty applicable. And then there's Tzu Qi, which means kindly and joyous. Which if you just saw her in public, you'd be like, what? But evidently, back in private with the other ladies, she was the life of the party. And um, everyone really loved her back in the harem. She just took care to put on her professional face if she had to be around men and other officials. And I think that is totally common sense. You don't want to be seen as frivolous. So anyway, we will now refer to her as history has as Su Chi. To the great relief of Susan. <laughs> I know. That's what I was just going to say. Although I have to say, I have... I have Jen written down for the whole rest of the thing oh. <laughs> because it was just easier for me. So if we uh -huh. have two completely different names, that's fine too. Uh, sure. Because if you read two books, you may have two completely different names. Correct. Correct. Now, speaking of two different books 
in seven and eight different books. My goodness, do accounts vary as to what happened next. So the eight men, these eight regents, were really the ones, as far as society was concerned, who had caused all this chaos in the first place. They were known for extreme graft and underhandedness in a place, frankly, that's sort of comfortable with corruption. Uh, Let's just say, as a way of life, they stood out. So you know they were bad. Their leader, this Sushun, was known for double dealing and violence. And this is the man who's supposed to lead their country now and be responsible for the development of the young emperor. There was a lot of bad feeling about this scenario going forward. And so the two empresses dowager, along with their ally, the sixth brother, Prince Gong, devised a multi-stage plan. The women insisted, as the five-year-old emperor obviously couldn't write his proclamations in the emperor's red ink, which made it official, some sort of official seal has to be added to make sure these are real, some sort of non-counterfeitable authorization to the proclamations. So it was decided that Qi'an would put her personal seal, like a, like a carved, basically a rubber stamp, although they weren't made of rubber. Um, hers would go at the beginning as the higher ranking dowager empress, and Su Qi's would be at the end. And the regents thought that they got off cheap with this, didn't they? Is that all? Okay. Yes. Okay little ladies. (laughs) You know, like, uh, you are not looking ahead. If they own the only things that'll make a proclamation legitimate, hmm, where could we go with that? (laughs) They're the gatekeepers of legitimacy of any edict, right? So they missed it because they're underestimating little ladies. Nod and smile. Scarlet little hair is nod and smile. It's working. Okay. So there were some engineered confrontations, which led to accusations that the men had lost their temper in front of the emperor and showed him disrespect. And in a culture so fraught with etiquette, this was very bad. This was a huge deal. She had gotten the emperor in front of these people and orchestrated a conversation that essentially had him wet his pants in terror from these people. And it was all manipulation. She knew it was going to happen and it happened and she could bring him up on treason charges. Well, even further, with the help of Brother Seven, who um, actually was married to her sister, if you remember, Suchi drafted a proclamation, quote, from her son to insist that his two mothers act as his regents for him. And the edict also deposed the eight men. And guess what? It's an officially stamped document. Put it in your pocket. Actually, <laughs> they sewed it into Empress Suan's clothing. It was much safer than any pocket. It's safe. So during the former emperor's funeral procession, which didn't happen immediately because astrologers had to be consulted for a propitious day. Um, so it was like two months later. Su Chi and her allies put their plan in place, the second half. So the boy emperor, of course, could not be expected, surely, to endure that 10-day procession. So he would perform the ceremony at the beginning. He would travel back to the capital with his esteemed mothers via a shorter, more direct way, and be on hand, of course, for the ceremony, the closing ceremony at the end, as was required by etiquette. But he didn't need to accompany throughout the countryside. And the highest-ranking regent, Sushun surely should be the one to be honored to go ahead and accompany the body of the former emperor. 
Of course. Flattery gets you everywhere. Of course he took that bait because he was not aware of any plot against him. By the time Sushun and Entourage got back to the Forbidden City, Suchi had turned public sentiment against the eight. Just tipped it, really. All it needed was a little push. He just poked it on the shoulder. Sixth brother, Gong had been recruited on their side. Prince Gong had already stationed a considerable fighting force among the crowds gathered to welcome the body of the deceased emperor home, just in case they were all, you know, hi, I'm a peasant, yay, waving, you know, mm -mm, no, they were soldiers (laughs) hiding in plain sight, but they never needed them. They never did. It was clever use of etiquette and some trumped up charges. I'm sort of medium sorry to say they they lied, as far as I know. They lied and said that the emperor's will had been forged by the eight regents. And historians really don't believe that's the case. But mm-hmm. more importantly, the public pretended to believe it because it was in their best interest, because that was, you know, that was interfering with the direct line of succession, really. So that was treason. And the dowager empresses themselves swore to this. And uh, it was a tribunal of nobles that found them in guilty of treason. And then they produced the edict that the emperor's will was that his mother's take over. Sushan. The ringleader, the man we should know in case we're too sorry for him that he'd been plotting to kill Su Chi, um, was sentenced to the death of a thousand cuts. But she was feeling nice. So instead, he just got beheaded. That was it. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> and evidently, if you are sentenced to the death of a thousand cuts, your whole family is to be beheaded. I mean, up and down the line, as far as extermination goes, like nobody's to be left to carry on your family line forever. Mm. Um, she also commuted that part. Nobody was harmed in the production of this execution, except for the one guy. What a kind new regent she is. (laughs) I mean, seriously, death by a thousand cuts, that's horrible because it's literally what it says. Yeah. Mm. So that's really magnanimous. And that reminds me a lot of when in England, you know, people were sentenced to be drawn and quartered and it was lowered to a beheading. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a better way to go. Beheading. Sure. Even if the the guy misses the first time. I I don't want to think about that. Sorry. It's not good. Okay, so Sushan's two main deputies were sent, get this, lengths of white silk with which to hang themselves. What a delightful gift to get in the UPS at the front door. (laughs) They uh, were spared, therefore, the humiliation of a public execution. But I assure you, if they had not handled it themselves, people would come and handle it for them. So that is not a good choice to have to make. The others were exiled and forfeited their property. So after all of this war up and down the country everywhere that has been happening for a century, there's a quick and painless coup for everybody but eight people. The day before Suchi turned 26, this proclamation went out throughout the land. From now on, all state matters will be decided personally by the two dowager empresses who will give orders to the Grand Advisor and the Grand Counselors to be carried out. The decrees will be issued in the name of the Emperor. And the Grand Advisor was, of course, Prince Gong. That works out perfectly, doesn't it? I I think we have to take a second and appreciate this woman who wasn't allowed to intermingle with men within a couple months of the death of the emperor was able to stage this coup. Yes. So that was 
really impressive. She had a troublesome way going forward, though, because no matter what kind of coup you stage, women still had to be separate from men. That is a societal norm that cannot be overcome. So this form of governing is always going to be a little cumbersome. Su Chi's son, the little emperor Tong Ji, would sit in the room on a golden throne with the male cabinet, and the two dowager empresses sat behind him, all shadowy behind this yellow silk screen, which is in the same room Technically, all these get-arounds to propriety. Everyone knows they're there. You can see their shadow and they're talking. And somehow that's okay because there's a little piece of fabric. Well, she can see out too a little bit. So she can read the room from her perch in the back behind the screen, which is good. (laughs) The, The room can't read her because she's just sitting there but she can read the room. Evidently, Suchi scared the poop out of people. She had a way about her in public. Like I said, she was a jovial soul back in private, but in public, she just radiated authority and was known for asking the pointed questions. If you didn't know the answer, you were going to be humiliated. She could reveal your motivation to the point where all these men knew they better get their ducks in a row before they walked in that room. And that's good to have high standards because it makes people not slack, I think. She also found it very helpful to engineer, maybe even manufacture, arguments or heated discussions among the cabinet so that she could just listen and get all the sides of an issue to see what the issues even were. I think that was good because it wasn't just what people wanted her to hear. She brought people's emotion and propensity to argue into it. And you can really get some more details that way. That was very smart, I thought. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She made a lot of wise moves here. on focused mostly on the administrative tasks. She did petitions, promotions, finances, anything to do with the family at all. Um, well, and that was her that was her role from way back. She's in charge of the entire women's quarters. That was her sphere for the most part. So she took care of those details. And Suchi was, I guess let's call Suchi was the head of policy and Prince Gong was the rest of the body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, she needed him. I mean, how frustrating it must have been to still be restricted by being a woman and have to depend on someone else. I guess you take what you can get, I guess. You know, um, this was radical enough. This three-party system seems to have operated quite well because all three of them worked quite happily together for nearly 19 years. But I do feel so bad for the little son sitting on that throne. <laughs> I know. I can't imagine a five-year-old sitting on the throne all day listening to boring conversation. Was he dropping off asleep? Well, at least he grew up swimming in his future responsibilities, which is more than most princes. Think about Louis XVI, who hardly knew what to do, and he was 19. So, you know, eventually they started letting him miss a lot of the days and just kind of caught him up. But at the beginning, he was there for authority. And then toward the end, he was there for a proper practical education. So, I, you know, I get this picture of him being dragged in there every day and sitting on the throne, but most of the time he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, the partnership between um, Zhen and Su Chi kind of remind me a little bit of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony yep. because they worked so well together. They knew what their job was and they did it seamlessly as far as anybody watching is concerned. I, I think that's a good model for a friendship or a business partnership. They fit nicely. I think one person's weaknesses or, you know, things they didn't care to do were the thing the other person loved to handle. So mm-hmm. I think that was great. When you could find that kind of person, that's perfect. <laughs> I'll keep answering the emails. Oh, well, <laughs> the ones that I can get to because I can't, there's a lot. <laughs> 
Yeah, that maybe we need a third person. <laughs> oh, we need a Prince Gong to handle the email. Uh, yeah. So Suchi began to educate herself with the assistance of educated eunuchs. Of course, the only men allowed back in the women's quarters. And I like this a lot. This is something that I am so impressed by. She encouraged officials to disagree with her policies. But again, if you bring it up, you better bring it. You know, don't just complain and beat your chest and bring me your grumpy face. But if you have a better way, let's hear it. And for an emperor to let dissenting voices in is pretty good. There was always an official department of censors, is what they called it. And their whole job was to try to pick apart policy. But that was more of a formality, I think. But she encouraged people to disagree with her, to her face, in the moment. Now, mind you, you had to do it with a great degree of respect. Don't forget yourself, as long as you had something to say. Yeah, that's like a debate club now. You know, they practice. They take a side and try to shoot holes in the other person. Yes, it's brilliant. It was a brilliant move. And I'm very impressed by her desire to educate herself some more, to bring in eunuch tutors to educate her in the classics, the things that she missed out in her education early in life. I mean, she never had a super high Lexile score, but at least (laughs) she was a little bit more uh, prepared to deal with the entire world. I think a lot of that education probably dealt with history and geography. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, it did. In languages. Um, mm -hmm. She read classics. I mean, Chinese classics that she never had. I was struck by the contrast between now we recapped the crown on the recapery. And there was a period, I think, during season one where Queen Elizabeth II was very dismayed that she had to appear in front of educated men having not had an education that would prepare her to speak about anything but horses and dogs. And it made her job exceptionally difficult. And so I'm glad that Suchi's overcoming on her own. Well, Suchi brought also a better relationship with the West. England asked, as they had asked her husband before he died, do you want help eliminating that rebellion, that Taiping heavenly kingdom that seems to be squatting in your southern territory? You know, a British official warned her, and I love this about him. He taps the side of his nose, you know, and whispers to her, maybe British troops marching around China is a bad idea, ma'am. Big of him, since he's British. You're right. Sir, you're right. Ultimately, Western military officials were invited to come train Chinese troops instead. That's makes more sense. You know, totally, yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I like that uh, honesty. And I think she really was pleasantly surprised over and over that people from the West seemed to act honorably, which of course she had not been brought up to expect. So the Taiping conflict was brought to a close. And then other conflicts throughout the country one by one could be attended to. And within a decade, China was more at peace than it had been in 200 years, all through a partnership with the West. And Suchi set up schools almost immediately to teach foreign languages, which is a radical departure from the traditional subjects in China. It's a whole new world, and we will be in a bad place if we can't participate. Also, we always talk about peasants and how if you're a peasant and your country is at war, you're not going to plant crops, you're not going to build a new house, you're not going to buy a pig or whatever, because it's all just going to be wrecked. Like, why try? Soldiers are going to trample it, your house is going to be set on fire, people will steal your pig. But you know what? People can be remarkably self-sufficient if they have peace. 
and an opportunity, and they know things aren't going to be taken from them. And that's what was slowly happening all through the land. People, of course, in areas not devastated by war, bounced back more quickly, but just quietly throughout the country, all this emerging from the terrible decades previously was starting to happen quietly all over the land. Also, to take advantage of economic opportunities, Suchi opened up the country to trade with foreign countries. Within a couple years, seven times the cargo ships were loading out than the last year of her husband's rule. And with trade comes import taxes. Put that in your pocket. You know what? Not in your pocket Because following tradition, Chinese officials from low to high would skim off the top, as nature intended, they'd say. (laughs) So leaving only a percentage left for the government. So always practical, Suchi nominated an Irishman for the job of customs inspector general. He shut down the corruption and so much money began to flow in. And of course, the Chinese officials, thus displaced, felt robbed of their rights. But Suchi's like, I don't care. It's a new day. Wake up. Mm-hmm. They had those huge bills from the war that they owed to Europe. So they were able to pay them off because of these import taxes. Brilliant. And also many of the peasant rebellions over the years, over all the years, in all the history, in everything we talk about, had not begun over politics necessarily, but out of hunger and desperation. And the peasants were hardly ever treated fairly due to all that corruption. You know, we saw Suchi's own father thought it was his exact right to come into a new country and start taking from the populace. I always say that wrong because of Ada Lovelace. (laughs) (laughs) I blame Ada. (laughs) Okay, so he took money from the populace. Well, we're working on that. Um, you know, that corruption. As for the hunger, Suchi began to import food, which had been illegal until now, and to investigate foreign ways of ensuring crop success. And her economic success often meant that China could buy food in times of natural disasters in the decades to come. So that helps with stability, too, if people aren't starving. Imagine that. Now, we're not all about the gentle side of life, because Westerners were also brought in to teach Chinese builders how to make modern weaponry and modern warships. And as part of that modernization, she was able to build a navy of seven ships within that first 10 years that she was in power. Western shipbuilding systems were giving them a fighting chance that they didn't have before, which is why they lost. So the beginning of some kind of factory system of manufacturing, also okay, let's move in gradually. But she drew the line at a train system and most labor-saving devices. Like, we've got nothing but labor around here. People should not be thrown out of honest work, some of which included heavy lifting. And railroads also too easy for foreign troops to get to the interior. And also this would destroy the harmony of the environment. And there was also, I don't know how true this is, a spiritual element. People didn't want the noise destroying the peace of the ancestors buried in graveyards? Yeah, I think the plan for the railroad, the logical plan was near too many burial grounds. Yeah, she put a kibosh on that. She sent men to England to learn about how the West was run and the reports back were just amazing. The queen was a woman. This is Victoria. She (laughs) appeared before men and there was a parliament, which meant 600 men. A whole room full of men, said the, <laughs> said the envoy. They were chosen by their villages to travel to the capital, to argue and debate and make decisions. Men served women in public. And I think he's referring to politeness and like helping them out of a carriage and that kind of thing. 
basic etiquette in the Western world appalled and surprised him because, of course, in China, he wouldn't do that. Right. Well, and then the separation, even within the Forbidden City, the women never saw any other men other than the emperor and the eunuchs. That's it. They weren't allowed to. So, yeah, that must have blown everybody's mind. Yeah, the women were openly walking in the streets. It's like, oh, my, what? A new world we have entered here. So um, she loved to read all of those reports. And she wanted a person from China to travel the world and tell its story to create a personality. One might say in modern day, a brand. Too bad there's not Instagram. This would have been way easier. But she wanted to create a welcoming, interesting image for the world at large. And again, she hired a foreigner to do it. She found that person in Anson Burlingame, who had been Lincoln's ambassador to China, But when that gig was up, she scooped him up and had him be the person that went around the world and explained China. He was the ambassador from China instead of the ambassador to China. And he did a very good job of promoting her. I want to quote from one of his speeches on behalf of China um, to, quote, the citizens of New York. And this was, I mean, this was right after the Civil War. This is how long placed in history this was. China now itself seeks the West and confronts you with its representatives here tonight. I aver there's no spot on this earth where there's been greater progress made within the past few years than in the empire of China. She has expanded her trade, reformed her revenue system, is changing her military and naval organizations. She has established a great school where modern science and the foreign languages are to be taught and has done this under every adverse circumstance. She has done this after a great war, lasting through 13 years, a war out of which she comes with no national debt. The present enlightened government of China has advanced steadily along the path of progress. I mean, he is totally singing Su Chi's praises. Also, he reminded people this change involves one third of the world's population. All change must proceed slowly, but it is proceeding. So all this world positivity is going on outside of the borders, but inside the borders, there's some trouble brewing. Some of the aristocracy, including Brother Seven, remember him, Prince Chun, were slowly starting to realize that they had misinterpreted Su Chi's tactics here, which they thought, okay, steal enough knowledge from the foreigners to get revenge for the Opium War, right? Uh, You know, they made our emperor humble himself. They burned the summer palace. Here is my list of foreigners, said Prince Chun, and their locations, and I hereby volunteer to go out with an army and exterminate all of them. Yeah. And he kept at her about this, kept at her, kept at her, wrote mean letters, told her she had to eliminate the foreign influence in the country, this and that. And I wonder if the foreigners ever realized how close they might have come to doom. That memo was too much. And the cabinet's like, we have to keep this on the down low. If this gets out, we are going to have a diplomatic crisis. And so to retaliate for her non-action on his memo, Prince Chun masterminded not only the execution of Su Chi's favorite eunuch, her close personal friend, the closest I think she ever got to a lover, the boyfriend of her heart anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, They were very, very close. Um, And Prince Chun masterminded his execution. And that sent her into a month or so of grieving, during which Chun, bro seven, 
agitated this anti-Christian rebellion through one of his henchmen. French citizens were killed, and Suchi and company had a giant challenge to avoid war with France. And it's all his fault. Other things that were going on in the country, all those missionaries that had been coming in had set up schools and orphanages. There was one particular orphanage that was run by a group of nuns, and they began to pay for children to come to their orphanage. So if someone brought them, they'd get a payment. That's okay in theory, but in practice, it means that children are going to be stolen. So that's a bad thing that's going on in the country. Mm. Also, a lot of people who had criminal backgrounds became, quote, Christians so that they could be protected under the laws that cover the Christians that came into the country. So they have bad apples floating around in their bucket, the bucket of Christianity. They're really hiding behind the skirts of of priests and nuns and, um, you know, doing that thing where you put your thumb on your nose and you waggle your other four fingers. It was even that open, like, can't get me now because look where I am. So that's kind of the crux of Prince Chun's conflict. And I think there was other little things. The uh, Westerners that were coming into China expected to live at the level that they did back home. And so they were being afforded certain luxuries that previously were only available to aristocrats, you know, like being carried around in a sedan chair. Mm. And that was nipping at, wow, this is happening. Our culture is being kind of nibbled apart by these Westerners coming in. So I think that fuels the brothers, you know, argument. Right, right. Like they've crept in and now they're starting to take over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was really walking a very thin line between accepting Western advancements and continuing Chinese culture. I mean, and she fell off of the line several times. Well, so one crisis averted, I cannot even explain the tap dance that had to happen between France and China to get them not to come in here and lay waste to everything. Um, Probably the fact that they were at war with Prussia, that's a lot closer to home, had a little to do with it. So we can't put all of the (laughs) all the joy on Su Chi's diplomatic strength, but still crisis averted. What was to be done about that loose cannon Prince Chun, other than put her two fingers to her eyes and point at him? You know, we don't know yet, but TBD. Well, it was time, although the young emperor had been enjoying a, shall we say, amazingly debauched young teenhood. Mm. It was time for consorts in power. You're 16 now. A man, an emperor, not a good one, or really a prepared one. He reminds me of Marie Antoinette in that he has pretty much evaded real education and responsibility quite cleverly for his entire life. Mm -hmm. He had the resources. He just didn't use them. So people would think he was educated, but in fact, he was moderately educated. And he, in his head, carried himself as if he was. And, you know, Anybody who wasn't was you you looked down on him like his mother. (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, he married one empress and four consorts and took over as absolute ruler. And so technically duty over Su Chi and Su An melted back into life in the harem. And I sure hope Su Chi took advantage of this break to sleep in. That was always the thing. If she had one wish in this world, she would not want to get up in the morning. She was just not a morning person. And all of this AM alertness was the worst part, as far as she was concerned, of ever having been the regent at all. So let's hope she's sleeping in 
because it's not going to be a very long break. The actual emperor was sneaking out for debauchery in the town, quote, frolicking with eunuchs in the palace and barely glancing at all these papers anyone brought him, hardly even making it to the audience chamber, in fact. So here, Su Chi and Su An had been there from sometimes five in the morning until five at night, all the days of the week. Here, he barely shows up for one meeting. It's a big contrast. His basic answer to anything posed to him is, okay, do whatever. Okay, fine. People started to realize he wasn't reading them. And then the bureaucracy kind of started cannoning about a little bit. It was a well-oiled machine, but if the main gear is not going very well, it's kind of coming to a grinding halt. And then he started firing anybody who dared to question him about his behavior. When he demoted Prince Gong, brother five, everyone came running to Su Chi for help. And she did meet the emperor and shame him, mostly by reminding him of the debt that China and you, the emperor, owe this man, all of these men. And evidently, by the end of this session, the emperor was kneeling on the floor in front of her. Who does she remind me of here? Eleanor of Aquitaine? Uh, Yeah, I didn't think of that before. But yeah, that's good. I mean, moms get stuff done. All the men got their ranks and their land back. Woo and alleluia. Um, Not that it mattered in the long run, honestly, because Emperor Tongji died either of smallpox or of syphilis. You'd think you'd know the difference. I don't know. Before he turned 18. (laughs) Apparently the symptoms mimicked each other. Well, and evidently he was sure a candidate for syphilis. Um, And so nobody would have been surprised. I think the modern interpretation is that he simply had smallpox because his only sibling, that slightly older sister, also died of smallpox. And she was not a candidate for syphilis. So they're kind of coming down on that side. Not that that's any better. It's a horrible death. Like we said during the Marie Antoinette episode, smallpox is not a good way to go. It's kind of the death of a thousand cuts. Only inside your body. There were some rumors that circulate, and you can see these in sources that are anti-Suchi, that she had poisoned him because his wife had been pregnant and she was afraid of losing her power. That's one of the rumors that is out there floating around to confuse you. And I also read that he never touched any of those five women because he was not a ladies' man, if you know what I mean. So if she was pregnant, (laughs) something else was going on. One of those eunuchs had made it through or something. (laughs) Yeah. And I also did read that his empress did not treat Suchi with respect, basically saying because she was the only woman that had come in the front door of the palace because she came in as an empress bride. (laughs) So she was the only one that had ever been in the front part of the palace. And, uh, you know, she was all like, who even is that? She's a concubine that came in the side door. I'm an empress that came in the front door, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure everyone around one warned her ixnay on the Ossip gay because you do not know who you're dealing with, notably and suspiciously. His empress died only 70 days after he did. And of course, history's fingers point, you guessed it, to Suchi. What a coincidence. (laughs) Now, we'll read also that her father ordered her to starve herself because the honorable thing to do was to commit suicide to be with her husband in her proper place. That whole family later did commit suicide so they would be with their emperor in their proper place. So mm, that actually has some credence too. I think so. Before he died, the emperor released custody of the country back to the dowager empresses, Su Chi and Su An. So it was 
Therefore, after his death, the responsibility of the two dowager empresses to nominate the next emperor. But Tongji never had any children. There was no male heir floating around for them to put on the throne. And you would think, all of us would think, it would be Prince Gong. All that experience and loyalty, you know, you got 20 years in, everybody knows you, family ties, so perfect. But it was absolutely wrong, not done with a capital N and a capital D, for an elder to succeed a younger relative, or at least one from the following generation. It was literally not possible. It would not have been seen as legitimate. So you have to shop younger. So they had to look and look, and they didn't really have to look too far, because Suchi's sister had a child, a boy, and they essentially adopted this child as their own and made him the next emperor. Suchi had actually adopted him as her husband's son. It's hard to explain. Um, <laughs> legally, he's the dead emperor's son, and that made it okay for him to be the emperor. And here, my friends, is how the sleeping dragon exacts her revenge on old Prince Chun. Just who is Suchi's sister, the biological mother of the new emperor, married to? Who is the new emperor's biological father? Brother number seven that almost started war with Europe. Su Qi had named as emperor her little nephew, Prince Chun's only son, his only heir. But as a result of this maneuvering, Prince Chun could no longer hold any official positions. Ha <laughs> ha! It's a conflict of interest. He was forced to resign all of his official positions. If he raised one peep in any political sphere, he would be using his position as biological elder to unduly influence the emperor. Checkmate, bro number seven. So I have read in a couple of places that that was the end. The little boy never saw his parents again. I've also read, conversely, as happens so often during this story, the quote that she was very magnanimous. Uh, you know, this was also her sister's child. She allowed, according to these sources, she allowed Chun to be in charge of the little emperor. Um, Guangchu is his name. His education and his mother had frequent access to the child. I don't know. Chun eventually did have three more healthy sons, all by concubines that Su Qi allowed him to marry. All of his henchmen also similarly treated. Extinguish their fire. It's very smart. Oh, yeah, definitely. And you have to remember that Empress Zhen is still in the picture here. She was also a parent figure to Guan Xu, too, although... Su Qi had Guan Xu call her Papa Dearest, essentially. <laughs> what should I call you? You can call me Papa Dearest. Oh, okay. Even though, all right. <laughs> Qian was Empress Mother, perfectly normal. And Su Qi was Blessed Father. Interesting. I actually, this whole entire time, I want to asterisk this by saying this is nothing more than my wondering. It is not reflected in any text. It has no basis in facts. Okay, now that I've said that, I wondered this whole time if Su Qi and Su An had a relationship, a lesbian relationship. You are not the only one. It was kind of a nugget in my brain until I got to this Papa Dearest part and they adopted this child. And I was like, oh. Well, that sounds like something modern, doesn't it? 
Yeah. The way that they act together seems like a perfectly respectable, functioning marriage of equals. Mm -hmm. I really admire it. And I had wondered, given that there's really no tales of... Well, there are, but they're all fake. Mm -hmm. um, you know, lovers and trysts and this and that. I had wondered if that was all taken care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did too. And then I it, then I scolded myself for putting romance into a situation that was purely platonic. And they were just really good friends who worked together really well. Yeah, I had a whole argument in my head. Well, so yeah, that's all I'm saying. I just want to emphasize that that was nothing more than something that popped into my head. So anyway, moving on. At last, she sent qualified Chinese ambassadors to other countries, increasing her store of knowledge. Man, the days those dispatches came were like the happiest day. It's like when your Vogue magazine comes in the mail. She just had to be like, woo, we'll stop everything and read these. They were so interesting to her. Um, Prince Gong is back. Yes, the old trio back in town. And they have a fourth, um, a man named Earl Lee, who was a modernizer that Chinese history does not regard with happiness. Let's just say he in modern China is regarded as a giant villain. Just so you know. Well, Suchi was able to put an end to the Chinese slave trade in Cuba and Peru to negotiate better legal protections for Chinese workers in America um, due to her strong relationship with America. She strengthened the Navy. She created a modern postal system with stamps. She created the first national flag, approved the installation of a telegraph system, modern coal mining on a trial basis, and therefore electricity. What? Electric lighting? Also, a coin-based monetary system instead of a weight-in-silver-based one, which was very susceptible to fraud. Whoosh, whoosh. What that is? That's the sound of the winds of change. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Make China Strong movement. Yeah, you know what that made me think of. Yes. <laughs> uh, in this case, I actually approve this message. But, you know, think about, though, if you're a conservative person, all of this is too much for you. It is. It's too much for you. It's happening too fast. It's, I don't know, I guess the last, say, 40 years in America, too. The winds of change have really ramped up to the point where people that are significantly older are genuinely having trouble operating in mm -hmm. the modern world. Um, and that's kind of how it was. Like every day, you've had thousands of years of relative stability culture-wise, and then here you come along like, what? Oh my God, what is happening? And of course, you'd feel a little bit grumpy. <laughs> well, um, so on the world stage, she also successfully intimidated, question mark, or negotiated the return of some land that Russia had just sort of crept in and appropriated. And that won her international fame for her skill uh, in diplomacy, because Russia was not known for being amenable to giving stuff back that they had a hold of. So that was good. Well, when Suchi was 45, her co-regent died. And again, history might tell you that Suan was poisoned by Suchi. I don't think so. I think she had a stroke. I that's my that's my professional opinion. And um some evidence does point to that. I mean, she did have an English doctor who had diagnosed a stroke. I think he called it apoplexy though. So, you know, 19th century medicine. <laughs> but um also, she had been reported to have had, quote, a fit like 10 years earlier, after which she spoke with a slurred voice, 
which seems to me also to point to a stroke. Also, she was known to have fainting fits. I'm kind of wondering if it was epilepsy. But um, anyway, so she had noted symptoms before she died. Now, this is not good. The young emperor was only nine, and there was still a lot to do. Now she kind of had to do it on her own behind the scenes. And the other way to phrase that sentence is, she got to do it alone behind the scenes. Correct. I know, it's a tale of two empresses. <laughs> well, Suchi blocked the textile industry coming in, and her feeling was women have little enough opportunity to earn money. Remembering maybe that period of time when she had had to sew to survive, I think, from her childhood. Mm -hmm. And also she put the brakes on the railroad again. It's noisy. It's unnecessary. It disturbs the ancestors. It also smells super bad. She was given a train. I love this story. <laughs> All these companies were vying to be the one chosen for China. Because if you think about expanding markets, man, whoa, oh, you have been made for life if you're the company that gets chosen to operate in China. And so they gave her a trade and she wrote it. Okay. You know, they set up a track and she wrote it and she's like, mm, smells bad. Don't like. <laughs> I don't care about the velvet. Nice, etc. But mm, no, thank you. Thank you so much. She boxed it up <laughs> and got it out when special visitors would come. She would get it out and set it up and have eunuchs literally pull it along <laughs> if she wanted to impress people. I find this so funny. And then you think of uh, Queen Victoria over in England, like, yay, there's a train. And, you know, Albert was so excited. It's a train. <laughs> One of those ambassadors that she had sent to Britain so long ago, um, in his letters, he had written that he got on the train and he wrote it 46 times, like in a row, like a guy on a roller coaster well, for the first time. <laughs> so I think that's why she was willing to give it a try. Well, if this guy likes it that much, I mean, OK, set it up. But but it wasn't for her. So. Yeah, she liked to be bounced around inside of the sedan chair. I mean, it was what she was used to, I, I suppose. The sedan chair bearers were trained by carrying a bowl of water on a cushion, and they had to relieve each other without spilling any water. And until they could do that, they weren't allowed to work on the royal uh, gig. Well, good. They're well-trained. Not for the royal personage, the substandard performance of the amateur sedan bearer. <laughs> well, there was an actual war with France over its annexation of Vietnam as a territory. Vietnam was not really part of China. It was kind of what they call a client state or a tribute state. They had to swear fealty to China, but it really wasn't his property necessarily. So it wasn't exactly the fact that France had taken over Vietnam because you know what? The Vietnamese didn't ask China for help. So we're not going in there. But what China was interested in is that France stop at the border of China. They had signed a treaty. OK, you can have Vietnam if you stop at the Chinese border forever. That's fine. And then there was some kind of incident where there was open fire and it was an accident from what the international community could see. But then France demanded a lot of money as reparations. And Suu Kyi refused to be, you know, strong-armed. And that's what the war was about, that she wasn't going to pay what she considered to be extortion for something that she didn't do. And they had already signed a treaty, and now they're Welshing on it. I'm no military strategist. I don't know how important Vietnam would have been to China. 
That falls into alternate history departments all over the world, I guess. But as for me, if Suchi, the one in charge with the details, thought it was a fair deal, I think I'm just going to say it likely was a good deal at first, you know? Uh huh. And so when peace was made, this is the end of that treaty. From now on, the friendship between our two countries will shine as brightly as the morning sun when it emerges from the gloom of night. So I guess everybody's okay after the war. <laughs> They made nice. Although Suchi is still taken to task for, quote, losing Vietnam by people in her own country. Um, the nobles thought that was very shameful to have capitulated at all. So she can't literally cannot win. No, <laughs> she cannot win. I mean, there, you know, I think she, it's amazing she did as well as she did. <laughs> so she also lost Prince Gong. Lost is a mm, euphemism for fired him. <laughs> He was acting weird and not helpful and kind of trying to stay out of critical meetings so he wouldn't get blamed for things. I mean, you give him a lot of benefits of the doubt, but eventually you have to give him the boot. Well, you have to remember, he was out in the public with all the rest of the conservatives who were saying bad things about Su Chi, where she didn't hear it, you know, directly. So right. I'm sure he felt very torn. Now, at the age of 54, Dowager Empress Su Chi announced that she was retiring. And ceding power to her adopted son, her nephew, he was 17. It was time to wish her goodbye. The American envoy to China, he summed up her personality and the regard with which she was held like this. At the time of her retirement, she was universally esteemed by foreigners and revered by her own people. She was regarded as being one of the greatest characters in history. Under her rule for a quarter of a century, China made immense progress. It will not be denied by anyone that the improvement and progress above sketched are mainly due to the will and power of the Empress Regent. There was great bowing and scraping and Empress Suchi retired to the harem again. And this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear about that retirement. And Suchi has retired to the newly renovated portion of her old glorious summer palace. Funds have been diverted from the military budget by her nephew, maybe, is my opinion, just to keep her there. Like, isn't it lovely? Look at this shiny thing. I'm going to give you some money. <laughs> also, there's another argument to be said that he was trying to cut down on the amount of modernization. So there was money for it because he wasn't putting it into his military. That's the uh -huh. other side, possibly. But for Su Chi, she had the retirement she was looking forward to. She could sleep in. Finally, she could grow flowers and raise her dogs. It was, you know, all the good stuff. And that was her retirement. And I'm putting that in quotes. 
And for the most part, I will say the nephew managed okay. You've always got the whole noob ruler learning curve, and that's understandable. A few times a week, he would come over for a quick update session with his mother, or should I say his father? His dearest father. <laughs> uh, so curious. But... As the situation in the region got a little dicey, more and more of her advice was sought. The Japanese decided that they wanted to be the bosses of Korea. No way, said China, understandably. But as the conflict got more tense and the sabers started rattling, many advisors bypassed the emperor altogether and just communicated with Su Chi, either through letters or in person. And if you're the emperor, I have to say this is not cool. It's also sort of not cool for Su Chi to allow it, actually. I mean, it might be an unpopular opinion, but if you've retired and you're letting these people kind of go in the back door, that seems kind of treasonous. I don't know. It does, although it does also seem fitting with her personality and her ruling style, because she's still kind of behind the curtain there out in the suburb palace. I know. I just think maybe she should have kept up appearances that he was the one making the decisions. I think it would have been better for him, mm -hmm. maybe for the country, but whatever. <laughs> I don't yeah. Know. So the war ended up being quite devastating. Japan had been more nimble in westernizing, for one thing. And of course, those funds that had been meant to strengthen the Navy had been diverted where? to the Summer Palace, and to Su Chi's restoration of it. And there, my friends, point your finger at that moment in history is your Marie Antoinette moment. I do not believe that she was in charge of where that money went at the point. Um, she was the beneficiary of it, but she sure got the blame for the Navy not being ready. Yes, she did. And I, I'm just going to say one word in her defense, and that's she seemed to have had some power still, so she could have stopped it, uh, you know, or maybe part of it, but she didn't. She's like, okay, I'm going to retire. Build me a castle in Boca. <laughs> Boca. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, the emperor, after this devastating and worldwide humiliation-filled defeat, he tried to buckle down to catch up with Japan in modernizing. And now we enter a period called the 100 Days Reform, which Su Chi kind of uncharacteristically was very, very against. And I'm wondering if she was thinking that the haste with which he was trying to do all these things was going to lead to instability the less gracious interpretation of history would say that she was simply worried about the reduction of her own influence. For her entire reign, she was trying to modernize, but at a pace that she could keep Chinese culture alive and implement these modernizations on a slow basis. 100 days, that's a short time to be doing these things. And I don't know, my feeling is she saw ahead and said, this isn't cool. It's not going to work. You're doing too much, too fast. And that's why she was against it. Hmm. Okay. Also, here is the rumor mill gearing up. Word reaches Suchi that the emperor conspired with Japan, that he was the agent of a foreign power, or at least that his court was full of double dealers and that China hadn't lost the war fair and square at all. But the emperor planned to cede influence and power in China to Japan. Well, look at the results. Korea's gone. Taiwan's gone. And China owes Japan what amounted to 14,000 tons of silver. Even worse, 
Personally, somebody ran and snitched to Su Chi that the reformers had a plan to assassinate Su Chi to remove her from the sphere of influence. And so, I don't know if it's reluctantly or angrily, but Su Chi seized her nephew, had him seized. She did not seize him. It might break a fingernail. <laughs> And she had him put on an island called Ocean Terrace. Speaking of retirement in Boca, that's what that sounds like. That's right. It does. The subdivision. (laughs) No, I mean, he had a house and everything. He's not just like, hello, live on the island, you know. Um, And he's retrieved for appearances sake now and then, but functionally his power's gone from this point. And she's back, back in the house, back in the palace. And most of the emperor's supporters fled to Japan, which is telling to me. Um, those she caught were executed, which in her defense seems fair. If their whole secret meeting situation was about killing you. Mm. Yeah, she can't keep people like that around. Nope, nope, nope. And ultimately, she did enact some of the reforms, which says to me that she hadn't been against the substance of the 100 Days, just <laughs> the, how shall I say, cast of characters, maybe, and also the methodology. So at least she had a noble reason. I guess. But we cannot have peace in this country for five freaking minutes. Is this more war than we have ever talked about in any episode? No, I can't remember as many wars as this. And I am so not about the wars at all. Well, I mean, this is even topping old Eleanor of Aquitaine in our sheer having to cover conflicts because they actually affect her life. Well, Mm -hmm. so up comes another famous rebellion. And I assure you, we've left many out. But here's a famous one, the Boxer Rebellion, so-called because it was basically begun by a group of martial artists. And in the world, martial artists at the time were called Chinese boxers. Now, these people were now, by this point, sort of an underground society that was anti-foreign and anti-Christian. Their actual name for their group, their name that they gave themselves is the Fists of Righteous Harmony. That's lovely. (laughs) Boxers? That seems almost like a slur, I think. Well, I know it does. I just, I have to say this one thing, and it's not going to come out right. I see why they targeted Chinese nationals who had converted to Christianity. Because from their perspective, if their manifesto was to rid China of international influence, What you would see of a Chinese Christian is nothing more or less than a collaborator, Mm -hmm. like a betrayal of Chinese society. Right. When they stormed Beijing, there was 100,000 of them. Their targets were anything that even looked Western. You know, obviously churches, because that's Christian, churches and people who looked Western, those are easy, but then Christian uh, Chinese people as well. People holding a Western item were shot in the street. That's a lot. That's a lot of blood. I know. It, um, I will say that their movement was pretty well supported in the public sentiment in China, I would guess, until they got to your town. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Because <laughs> these aren't Robin Hoods skipping through distributing coins. These are <laughs> distributing doom and hell. So eight countries sent in troops, quote, for humanitarian reasons into China to save their citizens, ostensibly. Japan, Russia, Britain, Austria-Hungary, France, Germany, 
Italy and the United States all now have boots on the ground in China. Exactly what you don't want from a long time ago. And this is why. Well, now there's a big, open, multi-sided war all over everywhere. Su Chi herself supported the Chinese side, the boxers, which seemed a little out of character for her. But here's what I think was happening with that. Foreign powers had really started to overreach. They were starting to carve up spheres of influence within China. Hey, hey, you know, Su Chi was not the all-powerful dragon she once was to them. Maybe the evidence was the fact that China had been so defeated in the Japanese conflict. Now, keep in mind, the emperor was there, but maybe they felt like Su Chi should have been able to fix it from behind the scenes, just like she had before. And now that she hadn't, maybe they didn't need to deal with her anymore. Hmm. Well, her faith, anyway, in their fundamental goodness was absolutely betrayed. They were showing their true colors, I guess, as far as she was concerned. And also, cheap imports of foreign goods, especially textiles, and that dang railroad finally coming to town had thrown a whole bunch of people out of work. So tailors, weavers, embroiderers, anyone in that textile industry, anyone in the transportation industry, carters and porters, the people she'd worked so hard to bring peace and prosperity to so that they could dig themselves out of their hole of despair were the ones suffering again. And she gave a speech. Today, China is extremely weak. We have only the people's hearts and minds to depend upon. If we cast them aside and lose the people's hearts, what can we use to sustain the country? So she is changing her mind about the West. And as if in answer, <laughs> gave her an ultimatum. They demanded that China surrender, get this, I can't even believe this, surrender total control over all its military and financial affairs to foreigners. That is unconscionable. And now she gave a speech to the Grand Council that's read like this. Now that the invaders have started the aggression and the extinction of our nation is imminent, if we just fold our arms and yield, I would have no face to see our ancestors after death. If we must perish, we must fight to the death. And then she did a little historical revision and claimed that she had always been plotting revenge on the Westerners all the way back to the Second Opium War, which I think is a little rewriting of her path. I do too. But she probably thought she could get away with it. There's no video on YouTube. <laughs> so she started marketing this current um, war as the long awaited for revenge, you know, best served cold, etc. I just don't think that's true. But you're right, a little rebranding is in order. Well, it doesn't matter because the foreign troops took Beijing. Yes, they sure did. And Su Chi and the whole gang had to flee to Qi'an. Yes, the home, the famous home of the terracotta warriors. Although at this point, they were still buried. We do not know they're there. Sad. They're all hiding. Uh, it's quite far away from Beijing, actually, 675 miles. So if you're going to retreat, retreat. And there is a delightful story that she had one of her daughters-in-law thrown into a well on the way out. If you'd like a little wicked stepmother spice to this story. She did, uh, this lady, end up in the well, I will say. So the evidence is against Su Chi. Um, more documented, though, was her demotions and punishments of all these daughters-in-law for getting involved in politics, which is pretty rich coming from Su Chi. And I'm reminded of a video I literally just saw 
online that Madonna was talking about how she tried once to tell her daughter that her daughter's outfit was too revealing. And her daughter looked at her and said, that's rich coming from you. (laughs) I would like to give you a big round of applause for being able to tie Empress Su Chi into Madonna. Well done. (laughs) Well, I'm lacking in Harry Potter references for this one. So I had to bring in a little other pop culture. (laughs) Good job. Good job. So the eight nations of the world said, okay, we will cancel this thing. You can stay in power. We won't do any more border snipping. I mean, you still have to pay us more reparations, but we'll stop all the madness now. And I think their overwhelming plot point here was that they needed some kind of operational government in China to provide stability. So the whole thing wouldn't be just a power vacuum full of war. Um, I don't think it was any personal love of Su Chi in any way that made them tell Su Chi that she could stay in power. So she did return from exile. I don't know how attractive their offer was, but it was the only offer on the table. And she tried to mend fences with Europe, but she now owed them so much money that it was going to be nearly impossible that they'd ever be able to repay it. Though there is one little bright spot. The United States president... Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy, as we call him, thought that China was on the hook for too much money. And he couldn't control anyone else's portion, but he did have the American portion reduced. And then the remainder was actually redirected back to China to fund a university and also to fund scholarship programs for Chinese students to come study abroad. So good for Teddy Roosevelt. That is good. And then she began a series of reforms based on the hundred days of reform called in history the late Qing reforms, such as a humane prison system, a less corrupt non-bribery based judicial system. Imagine that a regularized tax collection. Sorry, (laughs) Papa. (laughs) Those days are over. Uh, A police force. And again, the Western-style education spread throughout the country. She began to receive female foreign visitors in her private residence, who all said that she was gracious and thoughtful and intelligent and loved to laugh, just as she had been in the harem all along. The only people that ever knew her like that were her fellow concubines and the eunuchs. And now the world could start to see the private side of Suchi. I think it was very good rebranding. It was a good rebranding, but I think she enjoyed it because she allowed things to happen. We're not talking tea parties and dinners. We're talking extended stays. The American artist, Catherine Carl, she stayed there for a year. Suchi was happy with the situation. So I think... Um, I think she liked it. It kind of reminded her maybe of time back in the harem, you know? Well, we are working more toward a constitutional monarchy. Just in the years before she died, a constitution was actually issued that began the process of holding representative elections. So that ambassador so many years ago that marveled that, quote, each village could send a man to the capital to discuss and argue and make policy that was finally coming true in China at last. Well, Su Chi became very, very ill, and the end was obviously near. And as she lay on her deathbed, news came that the emperor himself had, improbably, died unexpectedly. And as was recently confirmed 
I mean, recently, as of only 2008, Emperor Guangxu died of arsenic poisoning. Uh, yes. And of course, history says Su Chi did it or had it done. And not perhaps in a gradual, long term, slow mo dose like in Flowers in the Attic, which I still can't believe our parents let us read. Oh, so haunting. So haunting. But in one, either one big dose or a very short period of large doses. How do you camouflage arsenic? I wonder what it tastes like. I mean, I don't wonder. It tastes, <laughs> evidently, it tastes like skinny and sweet, like in right. nine to five. I guess it's easily camouflaged by, by sugar. Well, anyway, I don't know what the reason would have been for her to do it if, in fact, she did. Maybe... If she did it, worry that her death was approaching and she couldn't trust that guy not to bodge everything up again. But I'm wondering if maybe she was poisoned also, like if this was a wholesale house cleaning of the Qing dynasty. We'll never know in her case because of something that happened afterward. And more on that in a second. Su Qi chose the next emperor, Puyi, the two-year-old son of, drumroll, Prince Chun again. <laughs> Another son he had to give to the throne. Actually, I see him as a good um, candidate for the person who did any kind of poisoning. Uh, this is just Susan theory. Oh. Because he had something to gain from it, maybe. Hmm, maybe. I, I know. know. I thought he made a turnaround there after. Yeah, but I don't know. I can't see her doing it. So I'm trying to find somebody else that could. Oh, it could be an infinite number of people. That's, who, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. So um, at least this time, though, Prince Chun was made regent. So that paid him a little bit for his further sacrifice. And promptly afterward, Dowager Empress Su Chi died on November 15th, 1908. She was 72 years old. And Su Qi and her nephew, the emperor, had died only one day apart. The empress dowager Su Qi was interred in these tombs called the Eastern Qing Tombs, beside the other empress dowager and in the vicinity of her husband. And I have pictures of her procession on Pinterest. It is about a 75-mile journey over there. And the new tomb is not what you're thinking. It's not just a box overground or in a building. It was this just complex of temples and pavilions and everything was covered in gold leaf. And there were all these golden ornaments hanging from the roof inside and outside of the tomb. It was a glorious monument to somebody that was very valued by the country. She received another name a posthumous name. And I will tell you, it is so long that it fills a whole paragraph of text, so I will not attempt it. There is an approved short form of her posthumous name, and she was known as Empress Xiaochen Qian. But I have to tell you that the Qing dynasty was over forever, only about four years after she died. You want to think that it was a happily ever after story? It's not. There is so many years of political unrest ahead after her death. I'm sorry. For a little picture into what happened right after she died, there is a movie that you can watch, a high production movie called The Last Emperor. And the last emperor in question is Puyi. And he did live into his 60s. Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, the hammer didn't fall on him. The hammer did fall on the Qing dynasty, though. And that movie kind of explains what happened. 
Um, But in July 1928, I'm very unhappy to report that Suchi's tomb was plundered and destroyed by the warlord Sun Dianying and his army. I mean, they took all the valuables that were hanging around, peeled off all the gold, and then blew up with explosives the entrance to her actual tomb ripped her coffin out, took her body out, and threw it on the ground and stole all the jewels from everywhere, including the pearl that she was buried with that was placed inside of her mouth as um, a good luck. It was a Chinese custom. And they took that too. They left no precious stone unturned. Uh, So therefore, her body is lost forever. No one can ever test it for arsenic to prove or disprove my theory that she was part of a larger plot. (laughs) The only good part of this is that in 1949, that whole complex was restored by the Chinese government, which makes me a little happier to know that the country valued her contributions enough to want to restore her legacy there. So at least you can go visit the monument, though Suchi is no longer there. And that brings us to the end of the life and times and death of the Dowager Empress Suchi of China. And now it is time for media. And as usual, we will start with the books. And my goodness, you should read and be amazed at the falsity (laughs) of a book called China Under the Empress Dowager from 1910 by J.O.P. Bland in Edmund Backhouse. It is uh, it's something else. It actually inserts one of the authors into Suchi's bed. That's how far it's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, that is online for your reading pleasure, now that you know the real story. Also online, and a much more delightful read, is a book by the painter Catherine Carl, who spent a year at the court called With the Empress Dowager, also available online, but both of these books, Google Books, the ones that are available, are really hard to read on a phone. So you kind of have to do it on a tablet or a laptop. The, just the way they section the book out, it just makes it too hard to read. Mm-hmm. I have a link to a New York Times article about Sir Edmund Backhouse. <laughs> I mean, just if you don't have to read his whole book because it's you don't know what's lies and what isn't. But let's just go with most of it is lies. I was like, mostly lies. (laughs) Mostly lies. And total fabrication, that's the part that blew my mind. So anyway, you want to read about this scamp. Let's just call him that to be nice. (laughs) I am only going to suggest two books. The older of the two is Dragon Lady by Sterling Seagrave. It's the life and legend of the last empress of China. And the newer of the two, and the one I would suggest that you read if you just want to read one book on her, it's Empress Dowager Su Qi, the concubine who launched modern China by Young Chang. And it's not only a smaller book, it's easier to read. Seagrave goes into a lot of details about falsities that are out in history. So that's kind of interesting. But um, I would just recommend the Chang book if you're just going to read one. To go along with those two books for a little light background reading, <laughs> which is my Hermione moment because it is a... Mm, almost like a textbook uh, that I've taken out here. It's called Beijing from Imperial Capital to Olympic City by Lillian Lee, Alison Dre, Novi, and Haley Kong. And um, only part of it relates to our period, but I think it's neat to see how the Forbidden City and then the larger city outside 
has grown, as China has grown. I found it um, quite a nice companion. And then for a fictional book that I have literally had since college and have read many times, but now, of course, that I know the real story, <laughs> it's not as true as it could have been, but it's great reading nonetheless, Imperial Woman, The Story of the Last Empress of China by Pearl S. Buck, the same person that wrote The Good Earth. It is told... It tells Su Chi's story from a first-person perspective. So similar to the way that Philippa Gregory writes the Tudors, maybe, mm -hmm. um, it really humanizes her um, and kind of brings a little color to the otherwise stark details of her life. So mm -hmm. I really have always liked to read this book. It's funny because when I was at the library and I saw that, I pulled it out and I was like, oh, I read this. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, I did know a little bit about her. Mm -hmm. But it was, I mean, years and years ago. So I'm going to, you know, I remember reading it. So, yeah, definitely get that one. That was a good one. So as to links, there is a YouTube link to some tricky Chinese pronunciation. <laughs> good luck <laughs> to you. Also, more tricky still, how, oh, how to text in Chinese. And then a little bit of a history of eunuchs and their life and times and a couple of articles and photo essays about the Summer Palace and the Forbidden City. Oh, I do have a visit to the Forbidden City, a virtual visit, because most of us aren't going to be able to go there. Um, it's now the home of the Palace Museum. And it's a really good virtual visit, I thought, and high production value, which, you know, we like. So I'll link you to that. As to movies, there is, of course, The Last Emperor from 1987 that I mentioned before. And if you're wondering who plays Su Chi in that one, and it is a very brief appearance, it is one of the moms from the Joy Luck Club. I have just saved you a Google search because I went down a rabbit hole. And really, the only other movie worth trying to track down, it's in Chinese with subtitles called either Advance Toward the Republic or Marching Toward the Republic from 2003. I will tell you, you're going to have to chase it around the internet because it has been censored in mainland China, who is not really that approving of its positive viewpoint of Su Chi. Interesting twist. Uh, so anyway, um, we can post a link for it on our website, but chances are, if you're listening to this at any point in the future, it will have been taken down. Okay, and I think that's all the links that we have. Um, I, of course, have a lot of things on the Pinterest board, including things about opium dens and laudanum abuse and all other delightful types of things that you can follow those rabbit holes if you would like to. In closing, there is a famous Chinese curse, which, of course, comes from no such place. May you live in interesting times. And Su Chi sure did. Her actions were never never ever without a degree of controversy and she did make some mistakes along the way but she rose to power right at the crossroads between the modern world and the ancient one and her decisions have shaped her country's future for better or for worse thanks for listening bye if you liked what you heard today tell a few friends or leave a review for us on the app formerly known as itunes but currently known as Apple Podcasts. Those of you who have an iPhone will find it extraordinarily easy to do so. And therefore, I dare you. I hope to see you there. All of the music today was graciously provided by James Harper, who records and performs as Harper Active. Thanks, James. We appreciate it a lot. You can find a link where you can buy his songs and all the links and recommendations that we made today during the episode on our website, thehistorychicks.com. 
my own creaky voice is graciously provided for free from the pollen-producing plants of the universe. I hope they lay off soon. Let's hope for the best. Thank you so much, and we will see you next time.